I count it a privilege to be able to be here to preach the Word of God. Um, and the privilege is because the Word of God has the power to transform us. Amen. The Bible calls itself a living Word. Amen. And um, we sang a few minutes ago, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord. And that song talks about a grace that is able to transform us. And it says grace that abounds. And I can't sing that song without thinking of Romans 5 where it talks about where sin abounds. You have a mountain, a pile of sin right here. And Paul says grace much more abounds. It's no matter how high the mountain of our sinfulness, there is an ever greater mountain of God's grace to cover for us in a way that is glorious. And that really ties into what we are going to preach on today. Our text for today is John chapter 4. And I hope you are familiar with this passage because it is one of my favorites in all of Scripture, John chapter 4. And this, in this chapter, we see that God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Father are inviting a soul-thirsty Samaritan woman Amen. to be eternally satisfied by true worship. And the subject of our sermon today is worship as the satisfaction of soul thirst. Please join me in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not by his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Amen. Mm. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou living water, that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself? and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Amen. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. And that saidst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain, nor yet at Jerusalem, worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Amen. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Let us pray. Father, the only way that we will be blessed this afternoon and evening is if you bless us. And Lord, you know how greatly we need your blessing. Lord, every one of us, Lord, stands completely exposed and naked before you. None of us can hide who we are before you. And Lord, you see us in our needs. You see our weaknesses, our sinfulness. Lord, you know how we despair often of being able to do the things that we know we ought to do. Lord, so often we are chained by the chains of our own lusts. And so, Father, we ask that you would free us and that your Spirit would work in our hearts and give us light and enable us, Lord, to see the glories of your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be able to believe. And, Lord, that by believing we might have life eternal. Bless us, Lord. We wait upon you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's introduce this passage from a terrestrial perspective, an earthly perspective. Here we have Jesus who has been in Jerusalem on the occasion of the Passover. And now he's leaving to go back north to Galilee. And between Galilee and Jerusalem, there's this province called Samaria. And many Jews preferred to go east to cross the Jordan River, go up through a region called Decapolis, then they would cross back over the Jordan River and come to Galilee. They'd do this big loop to bypass Samaria in spite of that being the most direct route from point A to point B. But Jesus chooses to go right through Samaria. Mm -hmm. And our text tells us that he had need to go through Samaria. Amen. The reason for this bypass that the Jews often did was because of a prejudice that the Jews had with the Samaritans. And we will get into that more in a few minutes. But in spite of that cultural and social prejudice that there existed, Jesus and his disciples go right through Samaria. And around noon, they approach this Samaritan city called Sychar. And Jesus' disciples go into the city to buy food for them, to eat, lunch. And Jesus sits down on the well. From an earthly perspective, here was a group of first century Palestinian men that looked just like every other group of first century Palestinian men traveling on a hot road going north. That's what it looked like from an earthly perspective. But let us now introduce this passage from a heavenly perspective. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we need to do this is because the Apostle John is concerned, not just that we see this story for a story that took place back in the first century, but rather the Apostle John wants us to see that this story is part of a bigger story, one that zooms out past Palestine, one that zooms out past the first century, and in fact, one that zooms out outside of our very universe. Amen. The Apostle John, in closing his gospel, his account of the life of Jesus, tells us this. He said, there were many things that Jesus did that he did not take the time to write in the form of this, in this gospel. Amen. And there were many witnesses to those things. When John writes that, he was talking about Thomas who had the privilege of seeing and witnessing the ministry of Christ. And Thomas believed, having seen Christ with his hands pierced and his side pierced. But then the Apostle John says, well actually Jesus says, blessed are those who did not see, which means blessed are we here who have never had the opportunity to lay eyes on Christ. And none of us had the opportunity to witness his ministry here on earth. But Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Amen. Yes. And how are we to believe? The Apostle John says, in spite of not being able to see it, and in spite of the fact that John did not take the time to write the entire 
life of Christ. John says, I have written these things in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. So the Apostle John is telling us that these passages, these narratives, these stories that he lays before us have been given us, not just for us to read and think what a wonderful story about times gone by, but rather that we are to look at these things and in these stories we are to see truths about Jesus Christ and that he writes them in such a way so that we might come to believe on Christ. Because by believing, the promise is, we will have life eternal. Amen. Amen. The Apostle John introduced his gospel from this heavenly perspective. Some of the other gospels began their account of the life of Christ, telling us how there was this woman, a virgin named Mary, who conceived a child by the Holy Ghost and how he was born in Bethlehem. You all know the story. Amen. That was the earthly perspective. But the Apostle John begins his gospel zooming far out than that. He begins, John, telling us about this character called the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. We could rightly say, in the beginning was and always had been the Word. And the Word was and always had been with God. And the Word was and always had been God. The same was and always had been in the beginning with God. This Word created all things. And without this Word, nothing was ever created that was created. In this Word was life. And that life was the light of men. That is the eternal, heavenly perspective that John wants us to see. This man traveling northwards towards Galilee was not just like every other man. He looked like every other man. He did not have any halo around his head. The Bible itself tells us that there was no beauty in Christ that would cause us to think of Him above any other man. But yet this average looking man was the Word who had always been God. And who was and always was God. Amen. And John 1 tells us, the Word became flesh. He was and had always been with God, but He became flesh. He became something that He was not before. And He dwelt. He tabernacled amongst flesh. And He tabernacled amongst us with grace. Mm -hmm. He lived amongst us dispensing grace upon grace. Revealing to us God Himself. Have you ever thought of His name, Emmanuel? God with us. The Word of God incarnate. God taking upon Himself flesh. And giving grace. And that heavenly perspective is what we need to see in this story. Here's the Word who has become flesh, who has come to give grace upon grace. And He comes and He times all the circumstances together in this story for the purpose of calling this woman to drink of living water and to worship the Father. And that call, because of what John himself tells us, that call is now here extended to us. This was not just written for people back then. It was written to communicate to us that Christ has come into the world to give grace to you here so that you might also drink living waters, and find your souls satisfied in God. That is an introduction from a heavenly perspective. Let us just look at some of the details of this story, and then we will tie it together here at the end about soul thirst. Listen to these words and see if you can pick them up throughout this story. Soul thirst and living waters and true worship. Hmm. 
We have this picture of Jesus sitting at a well, weary because of his journey. His disciples are gone, and there comes this woman of Samaria to collect water. Now, we said at the beginning that the Jews had issues with the Samaritans. And our text tells us so much. Jesus asks this woman, give me to drink. And you see her response of surprise when she says in verse 9, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? And look what the Apostle John puts in here for our knowledge. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Do you realize that? The Jews, Jesus was a Jew, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. You could say that the Jews and the Samaritans had a long history. Yeah. I've lived in West Virginia for a while, and there's two famous feuding families, the, the, yeah. the McCoys and the, the Hatfields, right? Yeah. And, and two families that had a lot of history be, together. And if you ask them which side was on the right, there's no good answer to that because it was one side defrauded and then the other side you know, getting justice and going a little farther than justice and then the other side making up for that and just tit for tat. Well, the Jews were, in the Samaritans, were in a very similar situation. The Jews hated the Samaritans for three reasons. They hated them because of their race, because of their ethnicity. They were a mixed breed. They were brought in by the Assyrians to populate the land after the Jewish population had been deported. They took the Jewish population, took them out of there, they brought a bunch of foreigners, brought them in, and they kind of lived there and intermarried, and there was this new race called the Samaritans. And the Jews who esteemed pureness of their bloodlines despised and looked down on the Samaritans because they were half-breeds. They were a mixed-blood race. They didn't like them because of their ethnicity, their racial, their, their bloodlines. But you know else why they didn't like them? They didn't like them because of their religion. You see, they also began this religion of this of mixture between pagan gods and worship to the true God. And that's laid out for us in some passage in the Old Testament where in order to gain favor, they worshiped the God of the Bible, but then they did so mixed in with their own paganism. Right. And the Jews abhorred that. And then lastly, they hated them politically. The Samaritans had joined sides with some of Israel's enemies. And the Jews had retaliated. This Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans had raised a temple there. And at one point in history, the Jews raised an army and went and destroyed it. I mean, there was war between the Jews and the Samaritans. So when the Apostle John tells us the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, you could say that was like an understatement. They did not get along. And you see that all throughout the Gospels. You see this despised, outcast group of the Samaritans that the religious, socially superior feeling Jews felt the right to look down on them. They were outcasts. And we see Jesus taking special note of them, ministering to them in a special way. That's what Jesus does. Amen. You know what? Jesus always goes for those who are not privileged, who are not right, who are not socially acceptable. That's who Jesus goes for. That's who receive grace. They receive grace far beyond those who feel they deserve grace. Or those who, even worse than that, feel no need for grace. Jesus comes to this woman and he says, give me drink. He's here standing beside a Samaritan well, asking a Samaritan woman, not just for an opportunity to pull water from a well, but he's asking to drink out of her bucket. I heard this illustration of this from a pastor, an older pastor, who had grown up in the South where there was still a lot of racial segregation. And he said back in his growing up years, there was public water fountains. There was water fountains for the white folk and 
water fountains for the colored folk, the black people. And he said, imagine a person walking up to a black woman and saying, a white person, a white man, walking up to a black woman standing at the colored folk fountain and saying, could I have a drink from your water fountain? That would be preposterous. That would be scandalous. But what if that person said, could I have a drink from your water bottle? Can you imagine in a racially segregated culture to walk up to someone like that and not just ask to drink out of their water fountain but say, could I drink out of your bottle? (laughs) And that's what Jesus does here. Can you understand her surprise when she says, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? Is this man that needy? And Jesus' answer to her must have completely befuddled her. Jesus answered in verse 10 and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Amen. He pretty much says to her, Woman, you're ignorant. If you knew who I am, and if you knew what God can give to you, yeah. you would have asked me for water. Yeah. The woman responds, you, you almost wish you could have heard the tone because yeah. you know, you're reading words but you can't listen to the yeah. tone. Her response is almost one of, let's set this guy straight. <laughs> she starts pointing out the problems with what Jesus has just now told her. Mm-hmm. Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with and the well is deep. <laughs> you dummy, there's no way to get water out of a well when you don't have anything to get water out with. Secondly, You said if I knew who you are. Do you think you're greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well? And he didn't just give us this well. He drank thereof himself. And he didn't just drink thereof himself. His children drank of it. And even his, it wasn't just that, his cattle drank out of it. (laughs) Who do you think you are? You know why men don't come to Christ? Because they do not understand the gift of God mm-hmm. and who Jesus Christ is. The reason why you are not saved is because you do not know what God is willing to do for you. You do not understand rightly what He is able to do for you and how that everything that God has offered to you has been channeled to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Every ounce of God's grace is given to us in Christ Jesus. And the reason why you do not come to Christ is because you do not know you are ignorant of what God has offered to you in Christ Jesus. That's your problem. And what comes next has got to be one of the most sweetest promises of all Scripture. Jesus says, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Jesus is not talking about physical water. His language is ambiguous here. He's transitioning. This lady's thinking from water in a well to something far greater. He says, Woman, whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But listen to verse 14. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. Amen. Do you realize the authority you have to have to say something like that? The water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Is there ever a promise greater than that? That God can give you something 
that will eternally satisfy her soul, not just for life. Do you realize all of the world is looking for something to satisfy them here on earth? And Jesus is here offering you a water that will not just satisfy you for your 100 years that you might be able to live here on earth. Jesus is here offering you a water that will satisfy you through all eternity. Amen. You hear idiots sometimes saying, what will we do in eternity? I'll be born to death. The promise of Christ here is this. He will give us a water that will satisfy you through and through and unto eternal and everlasting life. The woman begins to see this is not just your average requester of water. She says, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She kind of gets it, kind of not. Jesus saith to her, Go call thy husband and come hither. You see, Jesus is now going to reveal to her two things. He is going to reveal to her the reality of how soul thirsty she is. And he's going, to real, he's going to reveal to her the reality of his own omniscience. What does omniscience mean? It's just two words, omni and science. That means all knowledge. He is going to show to her that Jesus, he himself, has all knowledge. He says, go call your husband. She says, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, said to her, Thou hast well said I had no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that sense thou truly. We don't know everything about this woman. We know one thing, she was with a man that was not her husband, which biblically speaking is adultery. How? She managed to have five husbands. So she's on her sixth. Okay? If you think of logistics, this woman was obviously young enough to be hauling water. Think of logistics, six husbands? Even in our modern day when husbands come and go, they're easy come and they easy go. Six husbands is an accomplishment. And we don't know. Maybe... maybe you could maybe try to say she was five times a widow. But I would like to think that the context indicates that this woman was living a life of abandon. When you think of what kind of person, just working on the assumption that she had had five husbands and it wasn't all widows, what kind of person is it? That for whatever the circumstances were, goes from one to two, from two to three, three to four, four to five, five to six. We have here a woman who is seeking for something that she has not found. But that's not all that Jesus pointed out to her. You are seeking something that you have not found. He reveals to her, Woman, I know every last detail about who you are. You and I have never had the opportunity to stand before someone who knew everything about us. I'm married now. And my wife knows a lot about me. My wife does not know everything about me. And I am honest enough to say there are things about me I do not want my wife to know. And, and I say that seriously. I mean, that is a serious thought of standing in front of someone who you cannot hide anything from. One of the most Vulnerable positions to be in, humanly speaking, is naked. Why do we cover ourselves? Because the Bible tells us it was a covering of our shame. There's 
aspects of ourselves that we do not show everybody. And there are aspects about me, about my history, about what I've done, what I've said, things I've done, things I wish I could have done, things I have thought, that I would not want a single person to know. And you know what? That's true about every person in here. Amen. Do you realize how powerful it is when somebody knows something about you? Do you realize that's why people kill other people? Why are there oftentimes, you know, higher, um, what do they call it? Hiring for murder? Henchmen? Yeah. Hitmen. Hitmen. Yeah. Why are there people like that? How many times? We don't, I don't know the percentage, but how often would that be because they are killing somebody, they're going to go assassinate somebody because that person knows something about them? Would we say that was probably an often, huh? often the case? Do you realize how powerful? And, and those of us who are too self-righteous to go out and hire a hitman, how often do we wish, maybe, that somebody that knew something about us would die? Yeah. Or that they would forget? And I'm speaking to every one of us here. Because that's every one of us here. None of us here want to be a slate, a TV screen in front of the rest of us for us to be seen for who we actually are. And here is a woman who, through no choice of her own, is standing before this man who knows everything about her and she cannot hide anything. That's what it's like to stand before Jesus Christ. You know what the Apostle Paul tells us? There will be a day... Let me say this first. God knows everything about us. He knows everything about us. And He tells us that He will judge us one day. And not just the things that anybody knows about. Paul says He will judge the secrets of men. Do you realize one day there will be a judgment in which every last secret you and I had will be manifested? And every one of us will be exposed. Do you realize what a day of humbling oh, yeah. that will be? So, yeah. Well, this woman was experiencing a taste of that. Uh-huh. So she says, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. One way or the other, she realized this man has the knowledge of yeah. God. Yeah. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She's asking about worship. See this mountain, Mount Garrison? We Samaritans say that that's the place. If you want to worship God, you go up there and you worship God. And you Jews, you all say in Jerusalem is a place to worship. You are obviously a prophet of God. Tell us, solve this problem for us. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh... When ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Throughout the Gospel of John, there's this coming hour. This hour comes. And it says, the hour cometh. And then in verse 22, excuse me, 23, the hour comes and now is. Amen. He says, when neither in this mountain, mountain and garrison, nor at Jerusalem, will you worship the Father. You Samaritans... Ye worship, ye know not what. We Jews, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when true worship, this new kind of worship, true worshipers worship the Father, not in Gerizim, not in Jerusalem, but they worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And listen to this. For the Father seeketh, such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Amen. The woman expresses this statement of faith. She says, I know that Messiah is cometh, which is called Christ. When He is come, He will tell us all things. And our story ends with the words of Jesus Christ to her. I that speak unto thee Amen. am He. 
So I said at the beginning of the message, our, our, the, this message is about soul thirst in mm-hmm. sin and living water and worship. And what I want you to see, first of all, is that soul thirst and sin go hand in hand. Soul thirst and sin go hand in hand. God made us spiritual beings. We were made in a plane, P-L-A-N-E, but not an airplane, a level. We were made at a level above the animals. The Bible tells us that God breathed into us the breath of life and man became a living soul. As a living soul, the Bible tells us that we relate to God, we have consciousness of right and wrong, and that we have an afterlife. That when we die, life does not end for us. That there will be a coming life. There will be also coming blessing for some, coming judgment for others. We are a spiritual being. And as spiritual beings, we do things that the animals do not do. We ask questions like, who are we? What are we? Why are we here? What is right? What is wrong? We ask questions like, is there a God? We ask questions like, what comes when I die? And these are questions that the animals don't ask and the animals don't answer. But we have the testimony the world over of cultures that ask themselves these questions. And it's not just because we in the Western world have told them to ask these questions. For millennia, cultures around the world have been asking themselves these things and they've been coming up with answers for them. Trying to, at least. Right. Because God has created in us a desire to know and a desire to understand, and a desire to worship something. And man has been looking for a satisfaction of those questions, a fulfilling of those desires. You know how mankind does it? Just like this Samaritan woman. This Samaritan woman, in this Samaritan woman, we see a picture of each of us. Because here was a woman who had needs, physical needs, but deeper than that, she had spiritual needs, heart needs, that she was seeking to find help for. And how does she seek to find help for her needs? In two ways, the same two ways all of us do it. The one is seeking to pursue and to satisfy our physical desires. And the other one is with religiosity. Every last one of us has inner cravings, inner yearnings for something deeper and outside of ourselves. And we seek to satisfy that thing with satisfying our lusts. Thinking that by satisfying our our hunger for food, by satisfying our desire for entertainment, by satisfying our lust for money, by satisfying our lust for sexual things, that we will somehow find fulfillment and happiness here on earth. We are like the Samaritan woman. We are on a never-ending chase for something that will satisfy the feelings of neediness and of desire inside us. And you know what will happen? You will turn out, all of us turn out, like this Samaritan woman, five times used and on her sixth husband. You realize this woman was not only despised by the Jews, she undoubtedly was despised by her own countrymen. A woman like this had no reputation. Who knows what her social economic status was, but she was probably an outcast of her own society. Right. And you know that's where the fulfillment of your physical desires, seeking to fulfill your physical desires in an effort to satisfy your soul will land you just where this woman is at. 
We see example after example of it in Scripture. We think of the prodigal son who had a desire for something outside of his present circumstances and he left on a far journey and squandered everything he had on riotous living. And that is a picture of every one of us who have squandered the things that God has given us in a pursuit for something that will satisfy our souls. How else do we seek to satisfy the thirst of our soul? With religiosity. And we see, you you know why John puts this story here? Because it it tells us so much about ourselves. Here's a woman when she realizes that, well, Jesus knows about me in this way. Let's deal with my soul thirst with religion. Should we worship in Gerizim or in Jerusalem? And you know what? Man-made religion is because that's what it is. It's man-made religion. Men seeking to find a way to approach God on his own terms. And just like satisfying your carnal lust is something that the world does the world over, religion is something does the world over. Every culture that has ever been discovered on planet Earth has always been a religious culture. Having gods and having a form of piety of righteousness to attain to, of things to shun in an effort to appease the thirst of their soul. Mm -hmm. Now let me tell you this. Every person here who is unconverted is pursuing the satisfying of their soul thirst in one of those two ways. You are either pursuing the lust of your flesh to satisfy yourself or you are trying to dress yourself up and come to God on your own terms in an an effort to satisfy the thirst of your soul. Do you see the relationship between soul thirst and sin? Sin is an effort to satisfy something that cannot be satisfied by any earthly thing. That's why it's called idolatry. When you seek to pursue something to worship in order to appease yourself other than the true God. So, do you see the relationship between soul thirst and sin? Now let me show you this. The relationship between living waters and worship. This phrase, living waters, actually is in the Old Testament. If we go back to Jeremiah, chapter 2, Jehovah speaks to the people of Israel and He says, My people Israel have done two things. One, He says, they have forsaken Me, the fountain of living waters. But what was the second thing? They have hewed for themselves cisterns that can hold no water. I grew up in Mexico. We had to store water because you didn't always have, we called it street water. You don't always have street water. Where we lived in Oaxaca, we had street water one day a week. And it oftentimes came in at night. So my mom would be up all night using that water, but you would also be storing as much of it as you could in order to use over the rest of the week. And in order to store water, you use cisterns. And a lot of times cisterns are, back in that day, evidently were in rock. Hewn out of the ground. Down in Mexico, sometimes they're concrete, sometimes they're plastic tanks. But you're collecting water. The Jews, Jesus says, His own people Israel had forsaken Him, the fountain of living waters. And their second error, their second sin was they hewed for themselves a cistern that could hold no water. Do you realize how futile it is to fill up a cistern that has a hole in it? That is a picture of this Samaritan woman. This Samaritan woman, was, was her life was like a cistern that she was trying to fill with a water but that was full of holes. She was perpetually thirsty, never having what would satisfy her. So Jesus Christ offers to her living waters. What is living waters? Well, the Old Testament tells us what living waters is. My people have forsaken who? Me. What is Jesus offering to the Samaritan woman? He is not offering her physical water, obviously. 
Neither is he offering her some system, some creed, some prayer. He is offering himself to her in all that he is in God. God himself is offering himself to this soul-thirsty woman in saying, Satisfy your thirst eternally in me. Now what is worship? You see, worship is... Worship does not take place when we all gather here and sing. It can take place when we all gather here and sing. But some of us here are not worshiping when we gather here and sing. Worship is not when we pray. Some of us may be worshiping when we pray. Many of us may not be worshiping when we pray. What is worship? Is it something we do? Or like the Samaritan woman asked, is it a place where we go to? Or do you have to be a Jew or a Samaritan or a Gen? Do you have to be somebody? Do you have to do something? Do you have to go somewhere? Worship is when the soul is satisfied in God. That's why throughout Scripture we see statements of, like in the Psalms, where the psalmist expresses his satisfaction in whom God is. There is nothing I desire outside of you. That is an expression of worship. When everything that we are finds contentment in who God is. Which is why so often we see terms of water in regards to God. My soul pants after you. I want to be satisfied in who you are. I desire to worship you. I want to drink of your fullness. I want to be satisfied in who you are for me. What is worship? It is when your soul, it's not your hands, not your feet moving, not your mouth moving. It's when your heart and mind and soul realize that Christ is sufficient. That Christ is most precious. That Christ is all satisfying. And that there is nothing on earth that you desire beside Him. Do you see the connection between living waters and worship? How do we drink of God? How do we drink living waters? How is our soul to be satisfied in the words of Jesus Christ to the point where we never thirst? It's by being satisfied in the immensity of who God is. Drinking from the fullness of who God is and what He has done for us in Christ and realizing that God is sufficient for us. The most beautiful part of this passage is not just those things, those two things, but this, that Jesus orchestrated this whole thing because Jesus is Lord of Providence. Jesus orchestrated this whole thing to invite this woman to drink of living waters. He said, woman, drink of living waters. But not only did Jesus say that he was seeking this woman to drink from living waters, but we have this statement in verse 23, that God the Father seeks such to worship him. Do you realize here God the Son... Jesus Christ, and God the Father, come and they invite you, they command you, they tell you to come and satisfy yourself in me, God says. Come and worship me. Don't worship things. Don't worship lusts. Don't worship idols. Worship me in spirit. That's what Worship has to be in spirit. Worship has to be in truth. What to be worship? It has to be in spirit and truth. Come, the Father says, and worship. And in God asking you and seeking for you to worship Him, He is seeking your soul satisfaction. Do you realize that's because your highest good is found in God? Amen. You cannot find anything greater than God. You cannot find something better to be satisfied in than in God. God desires His own worship. 
And that is not selfish. Because in asking you to worship Him, He is bringing to you your greatest joy. I pray that you might see yourself as this woman was. That you might realize who you are. You need something that you cannot find anywhere outside of living waters. And the only way you drink of living waters is by drinking of God Himself. Amen. The call of God to Israel of forsaking Himself, the phantom living waters of hewing cisterns that cannot hold water, now comes to you. Will you forsake the fountain of living waters? Will you seek to build your life a cistern that can hold no water? The call is come. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come, drink, eat, eat wine, eat bread without money, without price. God is offering Himself to you. He is offering His grace to you and He invites you to be satisfied in Him. Oh, I pray that the Lord would help us all. This is for every unbeliever. This is for every believer. Amen. Because it is only... We, we, we get our eyes distracted. We start... Have you ever wondered... That, this happens to me where your inner spirit becomes, begins to seek after something. Satisfying some earthly carnal desire. When that happens, you're realizing I'm pursuing something other than God. And the reason why you're not satisfied is because you're pursuing something other than God. When our hearts are troubled in that way, may we stop digging a cistern that can hold no water. And may we instead turn to this fountain of living waters, which is found in Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless His word to us. Let us end in a word of prayer. I'll turn it over to Brother Grish. Lord, help us. Forgive us, Lord, that we are ignorant of the gift of God and of who Christ is. Forgive us, Lord, that we live in willful ignorance of that. Forgive us, Lord, that when these things have been shown to us, we still prefer to dig a broken cistern. Oh, Father, show us the folly of that. Help us to remember that sin is pleasant, but only for a season. But afterwards, Lord, it pays back bitterness and sorrow and misery. But Lord, help us to see also that in your presence, Lord, is satisfying of ourselves. Lord, that you will cause us to rejoice. In your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. And that blessed are those people, Lord, whose God is the Lord and who delight in you. Lord, thank you that you are our portion and cause us, Lord, to realize that. Lord, I pray for the lost here that they would come to know you. And Lord, that they would humble themselves and confess their condition. Lord, even as this Samaritan woman did, she saw herself and she saw Christ. And I pray that you use this message, Lord, to bring the lost to yourself. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.